I was just told that um, Andrew and Angie Sutton are with us this morning. Andrew, Angie, where are you? Raise your hand. There you are. Stand up right now, okay? Let's give them a hand. Andrew and Angie are our missionaries in Haiti. And um, we are so thankful for how God is using them and what God is doing through them in Haiti. Glad you're here with us this morning. Kim Bowers is an active member of our church. Her and her husband, Chris, joined our church family November of 2011, shortly after they relocated here to Lexington. I want to tell you a little bit about her story as she journeyed toward, went through, and to be honest with you, is still going through that day. Kim and Chris first met in 1991 when Chris's family moved to Fort Worth and joined Wedgwood Baptist Church, which was the church that Kim and her family belonged to. But it wasn't until both of them graduated high school and went off to different colleges in different directions that they began to date. Their first date was on August the 18th, 1995. Here's what Kim said. She said, we had a fun relationship, attended college football games, concerts, and just enjoyed each other's company. We had prepaid phone cards for long distance. How many of you remember those? Yeah, that's before cell phones. You know, that's what people did before, you know, they had these phones. They could just call and on and on and on. And she said they talked a, a long time. We saw each other every two weeks. Either I would drive down to College Station where he went to school or he would drive up to Fort Worth where I was in school. Kim or Chris proposed to Kim on October the 9th, 1998. He did it under the Century Tree at Texas A&M. The Century Tree is a place where, where kids go to get engaged. It's, it's supposed to give good luck to that family and that marriage. So that's where they got engaged. They got married on June the 18th, 1999. And just a few months after that, in September, there was an event at Kim's home church, Wedgwood, that literally rocked her world. There was a shooting. Um, seven people were killed. Seven other people were wounded. The students were there for a See You at the Pole event when a crazy man came in and began to shoot up the place. Kim's 16-year-old sister was sitting next to one of her friends that were killed. Kim's mother was on staff at the church. Kim's father, who was a Fort Worth police officer, their family literally lived across the street from the church, woke up because of the noise and was the first officer on the scene that day. To say that event traumatized Kim and rocked her world is is anything short of an understatement. To see your family shook up like that and to see people that you grew up with shot down and killed really affected Kim's life, but life moved on. On February the 22nd, 2006, God blessed her and Chris with their first child, a daughter, Madison Grace. And then on August the 27th, 2013, God blessed them with a miracle baby. Kim was told she couldn't have any more children, but God had other plans, and Walker J. was born. And even though there were ups and downs in their marriage as they made moves and they had job changes, life seemed good. But then on a Sunday morning in April of last year, Kim discovered that her husband, Chris, who was working out of town at the time, had been texting and seeing another woman. 
She prayed for God to change his mind, to, to soften his heart. She prayed for God to break him and return him to Christ, to restore her marriage, but, but that didn't happen. He came home on her birthday, May the 5th, a little over a week later, and told her he didn't love her anymore and he didn't want to be married to her. Then one week later after that, he told the kids that he never loved her and he wished that they had never been born. Can you imagine the pain, the hurt, the feelings of rejection and abandonment? And yet Kim prayed. She prayed for God to restore her marriage, to change Chris's heart, and yet it didn't happen. Today, Chris is living with another woman, planning on marrying that woman. Kim's still praying for Chris and praying for God to do a miracle. But that's what it will take, a miracle. This past week, Kim was in Dallas, her hometown area. She had two job interviews. And, and I would like us as a church family right here, right now, to pray for Kim and their two children. Um, that God will open the door for a job so she can be back close to her family as she is going through this. So church family, would you join me in, in praying for Kim? Let's pray right now. Father God, I come to you in Jesus' name. Lord, thanking you for seeing Kim and Madison Grace and Walker J. through this time. And Lord, I know that it is still painful. It still hurts so much. And they still need you. And I ask that you will just be with them and comfort them and watch over them. Lord, I pray that you will provide an incredible job for her in the Dallas area where she can be close to her family. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You see, that day comes in all kinds of ways. It can come through the death of a child. It can come through the death of a spouse. It can come through the death of a parent. That day can come through a tragic accident. That day can come through a deadly disease. That day can come through a painful divorce. It can come through a financial ruin. That day can come in a lot of different ways. But here's what you need to understand. One day, someday, you and I will experience that day. That's what the book of Job is all about. It's what we've been talking about for the last seven weeks. What do we do when that day happens. Now in case you haven't been here or you've missed a couple of weeks, I want us to give a very quick recap. In week one we discovered that the question we need to ask is not why do bad things happen to good people? Bad things happen because we live in a bad world. Understand, bad things are going to happen. That's not the question we need to ask. The question we need to ask is this, when the bad things happen, when our world falls apart, will we still love God? Will we still serve God? Will we curse Him or will we praise Him? That's the question we need to ask. In week two, we discovered that we have an enemy, we have an adversary, and his desire is to kill us, to steal our joy and our purpose in life, and to destroy destroy our life. That's what he wants to do. And he is going to hold nothing back in his desire to kill, steal, and destroy your life. But we also discovered that our enemy, our adversary, Satan, is limited by God. 
He can do nothing apart from God allowing him to. Because God is sovereign. God is all-powerful. And so God in his permissive will at times allows bad things to happen. But the good news is, is when God allows bad things to happen to our lives as his children, God already knows in advance that those bad things can work for our good. And those bad things can work for the good of others. And that's hard for us to hear. And that's hard for us to understand. But God can take the terrible things, the painful things of life, and he can bring good out of it. In week three, we discovered that our first response to that day is to worship. When that day comes, the very first thing we should do is worship God. We don't worship God based on how we feel. We worship God based on who God is is our circumstances will change but God never changes and we should always worship him in week four we discovered when that day comes we need people around us who will be there with us but the kind of people we need are people who will show up who will sit down and then shut up we need people who will minister to us with their presence we don't need people who try to give us explanations of why bad things are happening. We don't need people who try to give us a theological treatise. We need people who will just come into our life, sit with us, and love us. In week five, we saw that when that day comes, we've got to grieve. Grief hurts, but grief also helps. Grief heals. And even though you and I may never get over our grief this side of eternity, we can get through our grief with God's help and through God's strength. In week six, we discovered that if we're going to make it through that day, we've got to trust God. But trust isn't simply believing that God will do something. Trust is believing in God even when God won't do something when life is good we trust God when tragedy strikes we trust God when when we're overwhelmed with grief we trust God when God is silent we trust God and when God answers in ways that we don't want we even trust God because if we don't trust him listen this is important if we don't trust him we will not obey him and if we don't obey him it's then that we will find that our lives are completely unraveling. And that takes us to what I want us to talk about today. Job experienced the worst kind of loss imaginable. His pain, his, his emotional pain, his physical pain was more than any of us could possibly imagine. And yet he never stopped trusting God. And listen, he never stopped walking in obedience. I want us to look at two passages this morning as we, as we get started that both say the same thing about Job. The first one is Job 6, verses 8 through 10. In verse 8, Job is speaking and he says this, Oh, that, that I might have my request, that God would grant my desire. I wish he would crush me. I wish he would reach out his hand and kill me. Do you think that Job is tired of life? I mean, Job just flat out says, God, 
take me out of here. I'm ready to die. He was absolutely miserable. But then this is what he says, at least I can take comfort in this. Despite the pain, despite everything I've gone through, I have not denied, I have not disobeyed the words of the Holy One. Now turn with me to Job chapter 23, verses 10 through 12. Beginning in verse 10, it, it says this, but, and this is Job speaking again, and he says, but he, God, knows where I'm going, and when he tests me, I will come out as pure as gold. For I have stayed on God's paths, I have followed his ways, I have not turned aside, I have not departed from his commands, but I have treasured his words more than daily food. Did you hear what Job said? He said, when God tests me, I will come out as pure as gold because I've stayed on his path, I've followed his ways, I haven't turned aside, I've never departed from his commands, I've treasured his words more than I have treasured food. Now, why is this so important? Here's why. Because disobedience exacerbates our pain. Let me say that again. Our disobedience exacerbates our pain. Our disobedience always results in more pain. It may not be immediate, but eventually our disobedience every time always ends up hurting us. Now let me make several things very clear right now. First, we are not saved by our obedience. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. That's it. Our obedience never saves us. Second, our obedience does not make God love us anymore. Through Christ, you are already loved by God as much as you could ever possibly be loved by God. God will never love you any more than he loves you right now. He will never love you any less than he loves you right now. And it's not based upon what you do. It's based upon who he is. Third, the Bible is not primarily a book of rules that we are called to obey. I heard someone this week at the conference that we were at say the Bible is not a, uh, about principles that we follow. The Bible is about a person, and that person is Jesus. The Bible from, from cover to cover is showing us that we can't be saved by our only own obedience. It is only through Jesus that we can be saved. But with that said, once we are saved, God calls us to live a life of obedience. Did you hear me? Can I get a witness? Once we are saved, we are called to live a life of obedience. And the reason is his commands are for our good. And so many of us today don't seem to understand that. The things that God tells us to do, the things that God tells us not to do, are not intended to keep us from pleasure. They are intended to bring us to more pleasure and more fulfillment in life. Now, we understand that as parents. We give our kids rules to follow. Why do we do it? Because we want to be crusty parents? No, we do it to protect our kids. 
We do it because we want to help them. We know there are some things that will create pain. There are other things that will create lasting pleasure. There are some things that will hinder what they can do in life. There are other things that can help them fulfill what God wants them to do in life. And so we as parents set boundaries. We make rules so that we can help our children become all that God wants us to be. We know that, don't we, as parents? But it seems like somehow, some way, we forget that when it comes to God. So here's my point today. When we go through that day, when we experience pain and suffering, our temptation is to distrust God. And then the next step, inevitably, inevitably will be to disobey God, which only magnifies and multiplies our pain. And so when we're going through that day, our tendency is going to be to distrust God, which inevitably will lead us to disobey God, which will cause our pain to be multiplied and magnified. And so what is the point? We need to stay true to God's Word. Now let's go a little bit deeper before we get specific. I don't believe that that day by itself is what typically causes us to deny or disobey God's word. Some people say, well, I was strong in my faith until that day. I don't believe that that is true. I believe what that day does is brings to the surface what is already in our hearts. May I say that again? That day does not typically calls us to deny God's word, to disobey God's word. That day only brings to the surface of our life what is already in our heart. You see, that day can take sins that are in seed form in our heart and cause them to bust through in our life. That day doesn't so much plant the seed of disobedience as it does expose the seed of disobedience that has already been planted in our life. And the problem with many of us today is we've never truly allowed God's Word to expose that seed of sin that is nestled deep within our hearts. We want a Savior, but we don't want a sanctifier. We want a God who will forgive us for all of our sins, but we don't want a God who is going to cause us to be controlled by him rather than our sin. But we can't do that. You see, to say that I trust God and yet not obey God is nothing short of hypocrisy. And I'm not saying that Christians are perfect, but Christians are those who have come face to face with their sin and they are tired of being controlled by their sin. Can believers mess up? Absolutely. We can do more than mess up. Believers can fall flat on their face. Believers can flat out blow it. Believers can look like unbelievers in the way that they live. But deep down within, in our heart, if we have been saved, if we have been changed, if we have been transformed, we have a desire to live a life of holiness because God's Spirit is living within us. And it's God's Word 
that is used by God's Spirit to execute that change in our life. In John 17, Jesus is praying to the Father and he, he says, sanctify them. He's speaking about us. Sanctify them. Make them holy by your truth. And then he said, your word is truth. In other words, how do you and I become holy in the way we live? The way that we do it is through God's word. In 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul said this. He said, all scripture is inspired by God. It is useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong. It teaches us to do what is right. You see, the Bible not only teaches us what is true, the Bible tells us what is wrong in our lives, then it corrects us and teaches us what to do that is right. You see, God's Word not only teaches us theology, truths about God, it teaches us how to live in the world once we know God. And, and that's what we all too often neglect. James said it this way. He said, don't just listen to God's Word. You must do what it says, otherwise you're fooling yourselves. I'm afraid in the church in America today, we have a lot more listeners than we do doers. I'm afraid many of us have been fooled. We believe that we have this faith that's going to save us and sustain us, when in reality the faith we have is only going to deceive us and destroy us. You see, I can have a faith that doesn't save. If my faith, hear me out, if my faith has not changed my life, then my faith is suspect. And I need to understand that. Now in the book of Job, as Job is stating his case to God and he's making his case to these men who are accusing him, Job begins to deal with four areas of his life where he has stayed true to God's word. Now, are these the only four areas that are important? No. But I believe that these four areas that Job addresses pretty much speak to every area of our life. It's kind of like when, when Paul deals with his list of sins in Romans and in 1 Corinthians, and he gives us this list of sins and we read them. We know that's not all the sins, but we know that those sins that are listed are examples of the sins. And so as Job states his case, he shares with us four ways that he obeyed God's word. First of all, morally, Job stayed pure. Listen to what Job said in chapter 31. This is important. Everybody listen. Chapter 31, verse 1, Job said this, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look with lust at a young woman. Men, look at me. Young men, hey, look at me. Look at me. If there's one verse you want to learn, that's one of them. I made a covenant with my eyes not to look with lust at a woman. Because that is a major problem that we have in our culture today. Now listen to how he goes on in verse 9. He says, if my heart 
has been seduced by a woman, or if I have lusted for my neighbor's wife, then let my wife belong to another man. What? Let other men sleep with her. Why? Because lust is a shameful sin, a crime that should be punished. It is a fire that burns all the way to hell. It would wipe out everything I own. Did you hear that? Lust will wipe out everything you have. That's wrong. That's the danger of lust. And the problem today is all we need to lust is go to our computer screen or pick up our cell phone. And we can see images today that God forbid when I was growing up, you wouldn't even dream in your dirtiest, wildest imagination. That's the world in which we live. We live in a world that looks at lust for and longs for the kind of relationships in those Fifty Shades of Grey movies. And yet, we are so caught up in our lust that we don't see that we have bought into the lie of our enemy who wants to kill, steal, and destroy. By the way, there are some of you in this room who have seen those movies. You've gone to the theater and paid money or you've watched them on TV. Shame on you. When we have the altar time, you need to come to this altar and publicly ask God to forgive you. Because you are allowing lust to control you. Some of you are saying, well, the reason I've got caught up in this lust is to cover up pain that I'm feeling in my life. Listen, what happens when we disobey God's word? It magnifies and multiplies the pain. The lust is not going to help you deal with pain. The lust is going to create more pain. Chris Watt Rock is one of the most popular comedians of our day. Now listen, that's not an endorsement. He is foul mouth. He is dirty. But he has a new special out on Netflix. And in that new special on Netflix, he talks about the divorce that he went through last year. And he talks honestly about how his addiction to pornography destroyed his marriage. And listen, destroyed his sex life. Now, Chris Rock isn't speaking as a Christian about the moral problems of pornography. He's saying, as a lost man, pornography destroyed my relationships and it destroyed my sex life. Some of you young people, you think it's cool to look at that screen? Can I tell you what you were doing is you were affecting your ability to be turned on by your wife later on when you get married. And it's going to have devastating effects on you. And if you're caught up in it, you need to get out of it. And men, listen to me. If you're caught up in it, you need to beg God to forgive you. Because it is going to destroy you. But here's the problem. It's not only men today who are caught up with this lust issue. It's women as well. Through our romance novels, through our magazines, 
through our daytime and nighttime soap operas. And if statistics are true, more and more women are tuning into porn. This is a problem that both men and women face. And yet Jesus said this. He said anyone who looks at a woman or a man with lust has already committed adultery in his or her heart. And then he goes on to say this. If your eye causes you to lust, gouge it out. Does that sound like it's a big deal to you? Come on. Does that sound like it's a big deal? If you're lusting after a woman, gouge your eye out. In other words, if you need to get rid of the computers in your house, get rid of it. If you need to get rid of your smartphone, get rid of it. If you need to have someone who is going to hold you accountable each and every day, then do it. You need to get rid of it because it's going to destroy your life. Now, why is this such a big deal? Well, because the Bible teaches that there's something unique about sexual sin. In 1 Corinthians 6, 18, it says, run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one. Sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. I don't understand it, but there is something unique about sexual sin. It's a big deal. So morally, Job remained pure. Verbally, Job guarded his mouth. Listen to what Job said in chapter 27, verse 3. He said, as long as I live while I have breath from God, my lips will speak no evil, my tongue will speak no lies. I will never concede that you are right. I will defend my integrity until I die. And then in chapter 31, beginning in verse 5, he says this. He says, have I lied to anyone or deceived anyone? Let God weigh me on the scales of justice, for he knows my integrity. Now, some of you are saying, well, wow, that first point was tough, but on this one I'm okay. I don't lie. At least I don't lie very much. But here's what I've discovered. We all lie. We lie out of convenience. We lie to protect ourselves. We lie to boost ourselves up and make ourselves look better. We tell big lies. We tell little lies. But what you need to understand is with God, a lie is a lie. And did you know the Bible says in Revelation that liars will not inherit the kingdom of God? Did you know that? It didn't say those who hit the threshold of 1,000 lies. It says if, you, if you're a liar, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. This is, this is a big deal. But lying is just one way that we need to guard our mouth. There is gossip, there is slander, there's coarse talk, there's proud talk. There's all kinds of ways that we sin with our mouth. And Jesus said this, he said, it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. In other words, what comes out of our mouth originates in our heart. My mouth only says what has already been planted in my heart. And oftentimes we say things because we're hurting, right? We say things because we're in pain. But here's what I've come to understand. When we say things to people because we are hurt, when we say things to people because we are in pain to hurt them, to cause pain for them, we are only multiplying and magnifying our own hurt and our own pain. You see, the words that come out of our mouth may taste sweet coming out, but the aftertaste, the aftertaste is going to be sour, it's going to be bitter, it's going to be putrid. 
to guard your mouth. Third, relationally, Job cared for those around him. Listen to what it says in chapter 31, verses 13 through 15. Job says, if I had been unfair to my male or female servants when they brought their complaints to me, how could I face God? What could I say when he questioned me? For God created both me and my servants. He created us both in the womb. And then in verse 16 it says, Have I refused to help the poor or crushed the hopes of widows? Have I been stingy with my food and refused to share it with orphans? No. From childhood I have cared for orphans like a father. And all my life I have cared for widows. Wherever I saw the homeless without clothes and the needy with nothing to wear, did they not praise me for providing wool clothing to keep them warm? If I raised my hand against an orphan, knowing the judges would take my side, then let my shoulder be wrenched out of place. Let my arm be torn from its socket. That would be better than facing God's judgment. For if the majesty of God opposes me, what hope is there? Now what is all this saying? It's saying that Job treated people with dignity, love, and respect regardless of who they were. Job didn't take advantage of people. He didn't look down at people because they were beneath him or under him on the social spectrum. He knew that God created all people and it was only God's grace that had allowed him to be blessed like he was so he always sought to treat people with the view that they were fearfully and wonderfully made. Did not God create us both in the womb? In other words, there's no difference between that homeless person and me. We are both made by God. And as we read this, we discover that Job was always ready to help those less fortunate, regardless of who they were, the poor, the widow, the orphan, the homeless. By the way, I think this is an area that most of us who are kind of like me, we're conservative theologically, but we're also conservative politically, and we're blessed to be more middle class than lower class. We have a tendency to struggle with this one right here. And you would think because we've been blessed, we wouldn't, but, but we do. We have a problem with these passages that deal with social justice. We have a problem with these passages that tell us that these people who are less fortunate than we are, we have a responsibility to take care of them. We struggle with that. We have a tendency to look at them and say, well, if they worked harder, if they didn't make the stupid choices that they were making, and, and you, can, you, can, you can use the quotes that you use. I'm only using what's come out of my mind at times, okay? I'm preaching to myself. We struggle with this social justice thing, and yet Job says, I realize that Apart from God's blessings in my life, I would be that homeless person. I realize that apart from God's blessings in my life, I would be that poor person. I could be that orphan. My mother could be that widow. And so we step in and we help people. Isn't that what Jesus did? Wasn't Jesus concerned with the least of these? 
So morally, verbally, relationally, and then finally materially, Job saw that all he had was a gift from God. Listen to what it says in chapter 31, verses 24 and 25. Have I not put my trust, have I put my trust in money? The answer is no. I mean, it's a rhetorical question. Have I felt secure because of my gold? The answer is no. Have I gloated about my wealth and all that I own? The answer is no. Job never put his trust in the things that he had. He always realized that the things that he had were a gift from God. And because of that, he always held the things he had like this. You see, many of us, we have this idea that we have what we have because of the work of our hands and the sweat of our brow, and we think that it's because of that. But can I tell you, at any moment, if God wants to, he can remove your ability to work. At any moment, God can close down that bank you work at or that company you work for, and you're left with nothing don't get so high and mighty thinking that everything you have is because of who you are. Everything you have is a gift from God, and you don't trust in those things. When you begin to trust in those things, you hold tight to those things, don't you? But when you trust in the God who is the giver of things, you hold open those things saying, God, how do you want me to use it? Now, and here's what I've come to understand. When people are going through pain and sorrow, they have a tendency, if they already look at what they have as theirs, when they're going through pain or sorrow, they have a tendency to hold on even tighter to those things. When in reality, when we're going through the struggles is when we should have even more open hands because the Bible says we reap what we sow. And so if I'm going through the struggle and I want to reap from God, the best way for me to reap from God is to sow into other people's lives in the kingdom of God. And so here's Job making his case. And this is what I think we come to see. That day doesn't cause a person to have a lustful heart. If it did, Job would have had it, but he didn't. That day only exposes a lustful heart. That day doesn't cause a person to say hurtful things to people. It only exposes a heart that already has these hurtful things inside. That day doesn't cause a person to treat people hatefully and hurtfully. That day only exposes an attitude that is already there. And that day doesn't cause a person to hold tight to their material goods, that day only exposes a heart that is already trusting in things. And so what's the point? Well, here's the point. It's all a matter of the heart. When the heart is right, the other parts of our life will follow. Our eyes, mouth, the way we treat others and see others, and the way we give. Our heart controls it all. 
And so my question for you this morning is simple. When you look deep inside at yourself, not someone else, when you look deep inside, can you honestly say to God, you've changed my heart. My heart's been changed. There was a time when my heart was like this, but you changed my heart. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, it says that God will give us a new heart. He does. He changes us from the inside out. And so has your heart been changed. If it hasn't, then by no means should you leave this room this morning without humbling yourself before God, calling on His mercy, trusting Him to save you, giving your life to Him. Now, some of you are probably saying, Rocky, does that mean if I struggle with lust, I'm lost? Maybe. Possibly. Probably. But it could be that you're a believer and you're in bondage. Say, Rocky, does that mean that if I have a foul mouth or I lie and I gossip and I do all these things, I'm lost? Maybe. Possibly. If you do it consistently, probably. But, but you may be a believer who is in the bondage of that sin. Rocky, does that, does that mean if I look down on people, if I don't help people who are in need, does that mean that I'm lost? Maybe. Possibly. If you do it consistently and your heart doesn't go out to those less fortunate than you, then yeah, probably you, you, your heart's never been changed. Uh, Rocky, what about this material possession thing, this money? Are you telling me that if, if I'm holding tight to my money and I'm, I'm not a giver and I don't trust God with my financial resources, then I'm, I've probably never been saved? Well, I'm not saying that. I'm saying maybe you've never been saved. Possibly you've never been saved. But I am saying this, and you, you can get mad on this one. If you don't have a desire to give back to God, financially recognizing that everything you have is a gift from God yeah I don't think you've been saved God changes your heart and when he changes your heart he changes everything about you so has your heart been changed if your heart's been changed like Job Job feared God he was a man of integrity he loved the Lord. And because of it, when that day occurred, he didn't distrust God. He didn't disobey God. He stuck with God in spite of the pain. Has your heart been changed? I want you to bow your head. And I want you to close your eyes. And with your head bowed and with your eyes closed, I just want you just for 15 seconds to just be honest with God. If you know your heart's been changed by the grace of God, then praise Him and live like it. If you're here and you say, Rocky, I, to be honest, I know my heart had never been changed. It's never been changed on the inside. But you're ready. You want God to change you. 
then I want to encourage you right here, right now to pray this prayer to him. Dear God, I humbly come to you this morning asking you to forgive me. I've sinned against you. I've rebelled against you. I'm sorry. I'm tired of it. Today, I'm asking you to forgive me. Father, I'm trusting Jesus to save me. I believe Jesus came to this earth. He died on the cross for my sins. He rose from the grave. Today, I'm trusting Jesus to save me. Father, today, I'm giving my life to you. Fill me with your spirit. Make me brand new. Give me a new heart, I pray. 